this is Sally and this is Reclaiming Pride, LGBT plus survivors of narcissistic abuse. Welcome to our first episode. So this week we're going to be looking at who we are and why we might be more susceptible to people with narcissistic personality disorder or NPD in any kind of relationship. And what we're also going to do is look at something called the cluster B personality disorders. Now there are four personality disorders in this cluster and narcissistic personality disorder is one of them. But when you're in a toxic relationship with somebody who you were suspecting has something like this, you might at first be a little bit confused because a lot of the behaviors of each of the four B cluster personality disorders intersect with one another. And so you might be confused. You might think, oh, well, does this person, are they exhibiting uh, traits of somebody with borderline personality disorder? And then on the other hand, they're also doing things that somebody with histrionic personality disorder do. So it can be confusing at first until you start to understand. And the more you read, the more you see and listen to is that these four personality disorders intersect. So I want you to think of it as a kind of a Venn diagram, where in the middle, they all intersect and overlap. So what you'll notice is in each of the four personality disorders, you actually have behaviors that cut across all four of them. However, each one of them does have its own distinct set of pathologies, its own distinct set of behaviors. So that is where you're going to start to be able to identify whether the person who is abusing you or has abused you in the past was actually somebody who may have had one of these cluster B personality disorders. So we're going to do a little bit of both today, looking at the past and also looking at what the B cluster personality disorders are and how they play out in relationships. So before we do any of that, I just wanted to start out by saying welcome to all, um, whether you're still unfortunately in an abusive relationship with a narcissistic person, whether you have survived a relationship with somebody with NPD and now are free, or whether you are a friend, family member, or someone who just cares very deeply about the person who is in the toxic relationship, this place is for you. So this week, we're going to be examining uh, first who we are um, and why this may make us more susceptible to people with narcissistic personality disorder in relationships. Then we're going to take a look at what those B cluster personality disorders are. So I think it's important if we're talking about being in toxic relationships to perhaps look a little bit at ourselves and our own past to try and decipher what may have made us make those choices to stay, to settle, to be abused for so long. And let me just acknowledge that I'm sure you have heard, if you have ever shared with anyone what's happening to you in this relationship, I'm sure they may have said to you, why don't you just leave? I'm just going to pause there because it needs a moment because I know that so many people probably listening to this have wanted to just scream at the top of their lungs. It's so much easier said than done. I think a lot of people who have never maybe experienced abusive relationships, particularly in intimate situations where you may be tied to the other person financially, in the house you're living in, maybe there are children involved, pets, um, all of those kinds of things. It's so much easier said than done to leave that situation, no matter what. So I can only really um, speak about my own past. So that's what I'm going to go ahead and do real quick um, so that you can kind of have an idea by hearing um, what's gone on with me in the past um, 
you might actually have an idea of where it might intersect with some things that you are familiar with in your own life. My own childhood was was quite fraught. Um, I'm originally, as you can probably hear, from South London in the UK. Um, I am 50 years old now and I live in Florida in the United States. And I grew up in a house with a mum who had had anorexia nervosa as a teen um, and never really got over that illness And shortly after I was born, she developed a dependency on alcohol. Uh, So she was an alcoholic for the first 28 years of my life. Um, She was also addicted to prescription drugs um, that were actually originally prescribed to her for postnatal depression, postpartum depression, as they call it in the United States. My father, um, well, both my mother and, and his mother, my grand mother thought that he might actually be undiagnosed Asperger's syndrome. So, um, Just looking back, uh, my father passed away in 2000, but looking back at um, at his behaviours and the way he was, um, I think they were probably, probably close to right. I have a lack of self-esteem in my relationships. For example, I knew I was gay from a very young age and I actually ended up marrying a man um, because I didn't trust my own feelings. I didn't trust my own thoughts, my own inclinations, my own heart. And I thought I could sort of make it better and just ignore it. And and I mean, I know that societal pressure um, in, in many cultures puts um, puts pressure on folks who are LGBT plus um, to do otherwise than, than live their lives. But um, I actually believe that part of it was probably my childhood as well. Uh, there was a lot of violence at home, um, an extreme amount of violence. There was addiction. There was self-harm. Um, I would come home and um, find my mother uh, cutting her wrists over the bathtub. I would have to call the ambulance, the police, all kinds of things throughout my childhood from from a very young age, from about the age of six um, to really and truly to to when I left um, at the age of 17. So jumping ahead um, a couple of decades, by the time I was 27, I emigrated from the United Kingdom to the United States and I lived in New York City. Um, I lived there for 16 years and I actually moved from England to the United States uh, for love. Um, I finally left the marriage uh, to the man I had married, who incidentally I'm still very good friends with. Um, I moved for a woman um, and we were together for seven years. Uh, She actually ended up um, in the army and she ended up being deployed to Iraq um, and she came home with quite severe PTSD and the relationship did not last much longer after that. Um, I was completely distraught uh, and a friend of mine introduced me to the LGBT plus centre in New York City and he also introduced me to a an amazing group of people um, who belong to something called ACOA. ACOA, if you've never heard of it, um, it's a 12-step program. It's along the same lines as AA or Al-Anon or Codependence Anonymous or any of those 12-step groups. ACOA stands for Adult Children of Alcoholics, um, and they actually had a meeting And it was every Saturday morning in the LGBT plus center in New York City. And I went and I met the most amazing, beautiful LGBT plus family there that you could imagine. They were supportive and loving. Um, Everyone was extremely honest with what was going on with them. And I just shared everything that had happened um, in my relationship with 
the woman I had come to America for. I think it was about a month in um, to going to these meetings and um, a woman walked in. She was holding a book and a journal and a pen. Now, I'm an English teacher, so (laughs) this was very intriguing for me. She walked in, everybody was talking. It was before the meeting had begun and she just completely intersected the circle, walked across it and sat quietly on the other side of the circle and didn't talk to anyone, didn't make eye contact with anyone. It also didn't help that she was, as far as I was concerned, utterly beautiful. And she would just sit there throughout the meetings in in the coming weeks. And she would sit, she would come in and she, I noticed that she was also constantly late. Um, So after that first time, the first time she was early, but after that, every single time she was late, she would come in either as people were just sharing around the circle, feelings checks, um, or she would come in later than that. She was constantly late, habitually late after that. And she would sit and she would not talk. At that time, I thought, well, that's nice. You know, she's very attentive. She's listening to people. She's, you know, just maybe not, maybe she's a bit afraid of sharing. But then once we actually did start talking um, and I approached her and we did sort of start chatting and so on, I realized after a phone conversation with her after a couple of weeks that she'd actually been sitting and judging everyone. And she shared with me that she'd given everyone a nickname and that mine was Guilt Girl. I think the first time we met um, to actually do something together, we we were supposed to meet up outside a store, um, I think it was on 14th Street. Um, it was called Urban Outfitters. It's still there. And uh, she was 50 minutes late, five zero. But, you know, I, I saw her, I stood and waited and waited and waited. Um, and I eventually saw her kind of ambling down the street towards me, just like looking in shop windows like she had you know, no no one to get to, like no kind of deadline or anything like that. So again, I let it slide and we got in her car and I, I think we were driving somewhere into Queens, which is where she lived at the time. Um, and I remember we were driving across the 59th Street Bridge. And if you know this bridge, you'll know it's pretty narrow. And I remember she started talking about her ex. And I remember she started talking about what a victim she'd been of her ex Um, and she started to cry and get extremely hysterical. And we were going very fast, speeding onto the bridge. She was slamming the steering wheel, spit, tears flying out of her mouth, everything. And I was scared. And this was the first time I'd ever got into a vehicle with her. We were in this SUV kind of hurtling along, and and she was letting go of the steering wheel at times and things like that. And, you know, you got to remember, I've never been in a car with this person. I didn't really know her. I was very attracted to her, but, you know, this is what was happening. So I think this was really the first time that I can kind of identify that I felt fear in her company. That was the start of the relationship with my narcissistic ex. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, what is wrong with you? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Well, anybody um, who's listening to this who's had similar Uh, experiences will probably understand um, that we don't walk away. We forgive a lot. We we forgive much more than we should. Um, And as you could probably hear, I probably should have walked away and I did not. Little did I know that there would be cycles of abuse, phases of stonewalling silence, emotional, financial and physical abuse that would follow over the next 13 years at the end of which I was left $17,000 uh, in debt from her incurred debt, deeply mentally scarred. It affects all of my inter- interactions and relationships with others. I have night terrors. 
I have alarms on my house, chains on the doors, the list goes on. So that was just a little kind of eye into a very nutshell um, idea of what just happened in my own experience. And I wonder how many of you have had uh, similar experiences with that sort of thing at the beginning of relationships with these people. As we go over these podcasts, we will examine the different phases of narcissistic abuse. We'll also be looking at the clinical facts of some of the behaviours described and also talk about the very real experiences that we have had and maybe are still having with these toxic people. Also, rarely, and just just want to put a pin in this, rarely is there ever any closure with an NPD individual, all right? So even if you left that relationship, they might do something called hoovering. And if you've never heard of this, we'll, we'll have a whole episode on it. Um, that's where they actually try and, and get you back. And oftentimes, especially when you're in the relationship with them, they will constantly succeed. It's actually part of the cycle of abuse. Um, it's where they they are, you know, the most angelic person in the world. Um, they're so sorry, all the rest of it. Um, and they will hoover you. This happens after they have left as well, or after you have left them. Whether they leave or you leave, there's rarely any closure with this person. I, I don't really like using the word relationship when it comes to interacting with folks like this. I prefer the word situationship. Um, so I'll probably use them interchangeably. But my situationship with her, it did end up with her leaving. Uh, I, I sincerely believe um, that the only reason she left was that I was no longer a form of narcissistic supply for her. Um, we're actually going to have a whole episode on what that is as well. So, you know, stay tuned for that. So when I was back in the relationship with her years and years ago, kind of in the late 2000s, probably about 2009, um, I started to go to Barnes and Noble, the bookstore in New York City after work. Um, and I used to go to the self-help section and I started to look at books on abusive relationships, toxicity in relationships and so on. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. It was as if someone had been in my house or in our apartment and had written all the things that they had heard her say, all the things that they had witnessed. It was like someone had read my diary. It was, I remember breaking out into a cold sweat and I probably turned even paler than I am now um, when I was in that bookstore. The thing is, and what you'll probably also recognize is that the abuse was all behind closed doors and while no one else was around. So I started to think that I was going mad. It, this is what they call crazy making behavior. I used to think, was I exaggerating? Is this how a relationship is supposed to be? Even though I knew it felt wrong. You know, you still question yourself because you still have that self-esteem that's so low that it tanks and that, you know, it must be something that I am doing. It must be something that I am not doing right. I don't know how to do relationships right because I was never really shown them properly. So it must be me. As I read and I started to go to these bookstores after work, I, I bought the book Walking on Eggshells by Randy Crager and Paul T. Mason. I also bought the book It Will Never Happen to Me by Dr. Claudia Black. I also bought books by Melody Beattie, who you may have heard of. Um, she wrote a whole series of books called Codependent No More and a whole kind of series on being codependent. I was actually accused of being codependent uh, by my abusive ex. What you'll notice with these people as well is they often project feelings, thoughts, behaviours onto you. Um, but it's obviously their own feelings, thoughts and behaviours that they are projecting onto you. 
So you, with them clearly exhibiting these behaviours, you will still and all be told that you are the one who is awkward, that you are the one who has no friends or whose family knows there's something wrong with them, that you are the one that has no personality, that you are codependent, that you are an abuser, you, 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 it's all you. Well, actually, it's them. And it's just so, it's so crazy making to actually see them exhibiting these behaviours and accuse you and other people, actually, in your company um, of doing and being these things. The books that I bought travelled with me uh, at work. So I had two main jobs when I was in New York City. So those books moved from one locker in one college in Manhattan to another locker and another set of drawers in another college in Manhattan over the space of, oh, I think that must have been 13 years, maybe 14 years. So those books never came in the house. Um, She never knew I had them. She still doesn't. And I couldn't have her find them because I don't know what would have happened. I was I was literally afraid for my life if she would have found those books and that I was kind of onto her in that sense. Um, I kept journals. They also traveled around in lockers. They never uh, came home with me at all. And then when we moved to Florida, those books ended up in my office in, where I work in Florida. Um, they ended up in the trunk of my car. Um, I, you know, was afraid every time she would go in the trunk of my car to like get a, you know, put something in there or whatever. She might be like, oh, what's this box? Um, it was the books. It was the journals. Um, so that is all kind of another story as well. And also when I started to seek, um, counseling here in Florida, um, some of the stories behind that and kind of hiding and having to go sit in my car in the middle of a park, so that um, she wouldn't hear any of the things that I was saying to my counsellor. She would literally stand at the door with her ear to it and listen to my session so I couldn't have them in the house. But I want to just kind of move forward, though, and talk about a little bit about the end of that relationship. And then what we're going to do is look at the B-cluster personality disorders um, and start looking at how they intersect for us in these relationships. So I think... Um, If we're talking about the end of it, I think the last straw of that relationship was really um, two things. One was the death of my mum, who'd actually had 15 years sober by the time she passed. And also my own diagnosis six months later with uh, a blood disorder called CLL, um, and that is chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Now, a lot of people hear that L word and they're like, oh, my God, um, Actually, it works very kind of similarly to diabetes. Some people, some clinicians even think it shouldn't be called a cancer. Um, But because it's a blood disorder, it it falls under those um, lymphocytic disorders. Um, So with the deletion or the kind that I have, I actually might never need treatment and I will live to a normal um, lifespan. That doesn't really mean anything, though, if someone's just phoned you up and told you that you have this on the phone, which is what happened to me. I remember the next day so here we are the next day um we went out of the back gate for a walk and uh, i'd said something really innocuous to her i don't even know what it was i cannot even remember it was nothing that would have triggered a regular person for sure and she looked straight at me and said oh because you've got fucking cancer now you think you can say anything to me so i think that was really the lot la- the absolute last straw the, the kind of the last gate 
of my heart closed down on that one um yeah and then it, and it we were already in separate rooms at that time we were not um sleeping in the same room or anything like that and then eventually i think probably about six months later she left and as i've already explained there's no real closure to that there's still a fear there's still a fear that i could look out of the window and see her car for example there's still a fear that she could come to my job there's still a fear that all kinds of stalking might happen or anything like that so you know it's very difficult to have closure uh, with somebody like that so our next step is really to look at what these b cluster personality disorders are and how they play out in toxic relationships I hope just by me sharing my story, this has given you some insight um, into at least one situation that you may have ha- have some similarities with um, that you may relate to. So what are we going to do now is take a quick break. And then when I come back, um, we're going to look at the B cluster personality disorders. I'll see you in a moment. So welcome back. And like I'd said before, I want us to try and think about the B cluster personality disorders. It's like this sort of four circle Venn diagram where all four circles intersect in the middle somehow. But then there's quite a large portion of each circle, which is independent and of itself. So that's kind of how the four B cluster personality disorders operate. All right. So what we're going to do is just have a quick overview of these. And I want you to listen out for things that you that might ring true for you, um, that might seem familiar to you in what you've experienced with the person or persons that you are in a relationship with or you have been in a relationship with. So these B cluster personality disorders, that they're, they're a group of mental health conditions. They involve people having intense and sometimes unpredictable emotions and behaviors. They might struggle with forming and maintaining healthy relationships, often have difficulty controlling their emotions. So what they will try and do is they'll can try and control yours. They'll try and control your emotions. They have a hard time holding down a job, so they'll try and sabotage yours. They often have fraught, if any, relationship with their family. Um, so they will actually try and keep you away from your own family and friends. They'll try and get rid of your friends. They will try and separate you from their from your family because, honestly, they they if they can't have it, they don't want you to have it either. So you'll often see these kinds of patterns with folks um, who fall anywhere in any of the four uh, B cluster personality disorders. So we're going to start with the first one, which I always think of, and I don't know if I'm entirely right, um, but I always think of as the as the kind of the, the apex, the apex predator of the four uh, B cluster personality disorders, and that is antisocial personality disorder or ASPD. So people with ASPD might seem charming, confident. In fact, they often do. But underneath all of this, They have little or no regard for other people's feelings, rights, boundaries, personality, likes, dislikes, all the rest of those kinds of things. Um, They might engage in dishonest or harmful behavior without feeling guilty. So 
There's a lack of guilt here is a cardinal trait. And there's a lack of empathy here. That's also a cardinal trait for ASPD. And by the way, one third of these people meet all of the criteria for psychopathy. In other words, they are diagnosable as psychopaths. So that is antisocial personality disorder. The next one is borderline personality disorder. Now, you might remember earlier on, this is the one that I originally thought my ex had. Um, but I think she was, well, I know that she was much more uh, narcissistic personality disorder. But remember, I told you they intersect. So some of the traits in borderline personality disorder were present in her behavior, but the vast majority of them were narcissistic personality disorder oriented. So this second one is borderline personality disorder or BPD. Right? Individuals with BPD, they have mood swings. Like you never know what you're going to walk into. You could kind of talk to them one moment on the phone, hang up. Maybe you have to call back 60 seconds later and it's like talking to a different person. I remember experiencing a lot. You might relate to this too, that you could be in a store, right? A large store it might be Macy's or a large department store or, a, you know, a Walmart or something like that. And you agree to go your separate ways and look for various bits of shopping. And then they leave on one note and then you came, you come back and they're in a completely different emotional space. Like, what did I just do? What just happened? Who is this person? I feel completely off kilter here. I feel completely emotionally and mentally off balance because this per person seems to be a completely different person than the one I saw literally eight minutes ago when we parted ways. It's really disconcerting. So they have these kind of intense mood swings. It can make them feel very happy one minute and deeply upset the next. They seem to engage also in black and white thinking as well. So you're either the angel or the devil and there's really no in between. They might fear being abandoned um, or maybe I should just strike the word might. They do constantly feel like they're going to be abandoned. That's really their cardinal fear is abandonment. And sometimes they will do impulsive things um, to cope with these emotions. There's a lot of push-pull in these relationships, folks. Okay, a lot. Um, you will be, you'll feel like a rubber band with this person. There's also a lot of gaslighting as well. And if you're not sure what that is, is that the term actually comes from a a film, um, an old black and white movie, actually, called Gaslight. And we're going to have a whole episode on what that is, what gaslighting isn't. Because again, like narcissist and narcissism, gaslighting, triggered, these are all phrases that are tending to get thrown around willy-nilly right now. So people who are actually experiencing them, it can actually be quite invalidating for those people. So we're going to actually look at what gaslighting is and what it isn't in another episode. The third uh, of this cluster of uh, B personality disorders is histrionic personality disorder or HPD. People with HPD, really what separates them from the others is they're extremely attention seeking. Um, they might behave in an exaggerated way to get noticed. Um, they may be overly dramatic or show their emotions in a way that seems to be very attention seeking. Um, this is histrionic personality disorder. And as you probably know, there's a lot, there's a lot of that in the other three. So, um, it's just that there are certain traits for HPD that do not appear in the other three. And finally, 
uh, we have narcissistic personality disorder or NPD. So those with NPD, they have an inflated sense of their own importance. They think they are better than others and constantly seek admiration and praise. Just however, do not be fooled, all right? Inside, their self-image is so shockingly terrible that they will project all the disgusting things they think about themselves right onto you. So in the end, if you last that long, you will end up living out the way that they are feeling. So the way that you kind of trudge around the world, half half a person, is how they feel on the inside. So they literally will torture you emotionally, physically, financially, sexually. They will torture you in every way possible in order that you will actually start presenting what they feel on the inside. It's absolutely horrendous. And I've been through it. So I can I can certainly attest that that is the way that they operate. So that was a short outline of the four B-cluster personality disorders. And like I say, they there are aspects of each in the other and they tend to kind of reflect one another at certain phases. There's actually a book by a man called Jackson McKenzie. The book is called Psychopath Free. Um, and again, it's by Jackson McKenzie, who very, very sadly passed away in June of this year, 2023. He was only 34 uh, after a battle with anxiety and depression. But the book itself actually very skillfully shows the intersections of the four B-cluster personality disorders, and it separates them out and really does give you some insight into what's happening to you, uh, why the person is doing what they're doing, and how to, how to get away from them, how to save yourself, how to save your mental health. So I would highly recommend that book as well by Jackson McKenzie. So I hope you found some validation in some of the things we've discussed today, whether it was anything that you recognized in a personal story I shared or whether it was anything that you recognized in the more clinical aspects of the B-cluster personality disorders that I shared. Please note, this podcast isn't intended to replace professional therapy or counseling. It serves as a supplementary resource for support and encouragement. Listeners, you are encouraged to seek professional help if needed. I did and it still works for me today. Stay tuned, and I look forward to healing with you next time. Bye-bye. 